kilometres. Well, hi, everyone. My name's John. I'm married to Emily. We have uh, three teenage boys, Xavier, Silas and Micah. Uh, we're living in Hornsby. We're at Hornsby Prezi. Uh, it's great to be here. One of the things I love about the Presbyterian Church is we're connected to one another. Uh, and so what you go through, we go through too. And so you've seen a few of us from Hornsby. I'm sure you'll see a few more and we'll see others from around the wider church. And uh, that's God's good plan for us that we're in this together. Uh, so thank you for receiving me. Uh, I'm going to pray for us now. Uh, this is pretty weighty material that we're dealing with today, as you might have picked up as we heard it. And so let me pray and ask for God's help to humble our hearts, uh, to unblock our ears, and to speak clearly to us that we might be built up as his people. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. We thank you for the ways in which you have spoken and continue to speak through your word and by your spirit, even in ordinary contexts like us gathering here this morning. Please speak again by your powerful spirit. Please speak through me. Please use this word to build up your people and to bring people into a closer, more trusting and more faithful walk with the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his great name. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever met someone really famous or powerful? One or two nods, a few. Uh, in Australian culture, we don't tend to respect these people very much. Uh, we're actually quite irreverent. Uh, we like to cut down these people and expose their faults and their flaws and deny them our respect. We even have a uniquely Australian name for this phenomenon, uh, tall poppy syndrome. Okay, so we know what we're talking about. Uh, if you grow up in Australia, this kind of attitude can really make it hard to respect powerful people like we should. Uh, I remember when I was 18 years old, I met the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Well, sort of. Uh, our family were living in Malaysia in the 1990s and I used to swim competitively when I was there. And at a major swimming competition, the Prime Minister dropped in and uh, it was a huge deal. He was easily the most powerful person in the country. Uh, everyone all around me uh, were showing signs of respect and were bowing before his presence. But I was lined up behind the blocks in my speedos waiting for my next race and so all he got from me was a g'day. In our culture, children typically struggle to respect their parents and their teachers. Uh, and adults struggle to respect their bosses and their leaders. Uh, about the only people we tend to respect naturally in our culture is the larrikin sportsman who helps us beat England, especially in cricket. We prefer to relate to others as if they're on our level. But this negative attitude towards power can actually make it really hard for us to relate well to God. Our culture loves the idea of God as Saviour, but not as Lord. We want more of God's grace, but not His law, especially if it might stop me doing something that I really enjoy. And we want God to serve us in our mission, don't we? Like our personal genie, rather than us serving God in His this morning, we're going to look at what happens when the Israelites 
meet the most powerful being in the universe. The good news for us coming out of these two chapters is this. God saves through a mediator for holiness, mission and worship. Uh, the sermon is broken into four parts and they're summarised in that outline that I think you got as you came through. Uh, God saves through a mediator for holiness, mission and worship. Let's start with God saves. Chapter 19 begins by telling us that God's people arrived at Mount Sinai. Now this was not an unintended stop on the way to the promised land. This was the sign that God promised to fulfil to Moses in chapter 3 verse 12 that he would bring his people to this mountain to worship him. And now that the Israelites are assembled before this mountain, God wants to remind them of this incredibly important truth. It is God alone who saves his people. Have a look at Exodus 19.4. We've heard it read. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God says something similar again in the next chapter in verse 2. It was God who delivered his people from the Egyptians. It was God who led them through the wilderness. And it was God who led his people here to Mount Sinai. What role did the Israelites play in their salvation? None. Who promised Abraham 400 years earlier that his descendants would be slaves and then come out with great possessions? Who dreamed up the plan to rescue Israel out of Egypt? Who called Moses out of the wilderness to lead God's people? Who told Moses what to say to Pharaoh and then how Pharaoh would respond each and every time? Who brought down the plagues upon the Egyptians and their gods? Who led Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night? Who parted the Red Sea for the Israelites and then brought it down on the Egyptians? Who provided manna in the mornings and meat at night? Who brought water out of the rock in the middle of the desert? Who alone saves? It's God. Why is this truth so fundamental that it needs to be placed first? Well, in chapter 20, God will give his people his law to live by. But this law always comes after God saves, not before. Our trust must not be in ourselves or our righteous obedience, but in the God who saves. Some Christians mistakenly believe that God gave law to his people in the Old Testament and then grace in the New Testament. But God operates the same way all the way through the Bible. Look at Exodus 19:4 and 22. Grace comes before law, just as the exodus from Egypt comes before the law at Mount Sinai. Today it is still God alone who saves. Now it is true that our context is a little bit different from the Israelites. Uh, we weren't slaves to the most powerful leader of the land. We were in fact slaves to forces far more powerful. Satan, sin and our fear of death. We need to be reminded again and again that we don't save ourselves, but God saves us. Uh, a memory verse that many of us have memorised comes from Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, which puts it really well. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. 
If you haven't experienced God saving you and you're interested in finding out more, then please come and chat to one of the leaders here at the church or me after the service. There is no problem so great that God cannot save you. Let's have a look further at our second point. God saves through a mediator. Throughout the book of Exodus, Moses acted as a mediator or a representative between God and his people. It was through Moses that God demanded Pharaoh release his people. It was through Moses that God brought the plagues upon Egypt and then brought an end to each of those plagues. It was through Moses that the Red Sea was parted and then dropped upon the Egyptian army. It was through Moses that God spoke to his people. Now, here at Mount Sinai, Moses is going to go up and down that mountain at least four times in these chapters. The first time is when he delivers this message that we heard earlier, that it is he alone who saves them in 19 verse 4. Later, in verse 8 of chapter 19, Moses goes back up the mountain. And then in verse 9, he promises that he will speak out loud to Moses from the dense cloud so that everyone would hear and put their trust in him. After passing this message on, he speaks with God again in verse 10. God then tells Moses to prepare the people to meet him at Mount Sinai. But God will remain hidden behind a thick cloud. The people are to be consecrated and made clean. And yet the people will be held back at a distance and cannot touch the mountain on which God will descend. On the third day in chapter 19 verse 16, the Israelites finally meet God. There was thunder and lightning. Thick cloud covered the mountain. A noise like a trumpet blast rang out and the people trembled with fear. Moses led the people out from their camp towards the foot of the mountain where all of this was happening. The Lord had come down. Thick darkness covered his presence. The top of the mountain was ablaze with fire. The mountain shook like an earthquake and the sound like a trumpet grew louder and louder. God's voice boomed through the thunder. And God tells his people, stay back or perish in verse 21. God is holy and his presence absolutely terrified his saved people. Thunder, lightning, trumpet blasts, earthquakes, fire and smoke. Now, this is not some shock and awe campaign designed to terrify a vulnerable people. This is God's creation submitting to and worshipping its creator. Have you ever paused to consider who it is we worship? He is the tallest of tall poppies. And try as we might, we can never bring him down to our level. He is not a fellow creature like us. He is the creator. God saved people, they trembled in fear. And so in chapter 20, verse 19, they asked Moses to speak to God instead of them, lest they die. God's holy presence is nothing less than terrifying. If this is how God's holy people responded, can you imagine what it must be like to fall under God's judgment? After Adam's sin, we can't rock up to God casually and approach him in his power and holiness as if he's one of us. He's not our mate. 
we too need a mediator like Moses who can represent us before God. The good news for us is that God has appointed Jesus to be our one and only mediator before him. Just like to Moses, God spoke loudly from behind the cloud so that everyone could hear. The first time this happened was at Jesus' baptism where God spoke out loud and said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And he did it again when he was transfigured, when Jesus was transfigured before his disciples and God spoke from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 1 Timothy 2.5 sums it up so clearly. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Today, Jesus is our only mediator before God. He is the great and promised prophet that Moses said would come, who not only speaks God's word, but is God's word brought into flesh. Jesus is the great high priest who prays with us in, and for us in God's presence and who offers his own blood as a once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is the promised king from the line of David who sits on the throne of power at God's right hand and will bring all things to account when he returns in power and cleanses our world from corruption under sin. Hebrews 4.16 invites us to come into God's powerful and holy presence, not with fear, but with confidence, to ask for mercy and grace in our time of need. We just heard another great memory verse from Sarah, from Psalm 141.8, which speaks to that same promise. We can't bring God down to our level, like our tall poppy cultural phenomenon teaches us. Instead, through Jesus, God lifts us out of our sin and up to him as his children and invites us to address him as father. Today, because of Jesus, there's no need for us to live in fear of God. He's now safe enough to approach, even in your speedos. But the time for grace is limited and one day it will come to an end. God has promised to fix our broken world and all of its corruptions. And like he did to the Egyptians, he will bring judgment. And that same mediator who saves will come back in great power and judge. But today is not that day, God willing. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said again in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you are fearful of God's judgment, or if you are burdened by the guilt or the consequences of your sin or even the sin of others upon you, then turn to Jesus and he will show you mercy and grace in your time of need. Let's now turn to point three in our sermon. God saves his people for holiness. After the people gathered near the foot of Mount Sinai, God gave them his law through his mediator Moses. This law defined for God's people how they should live. Ten commandments 
were all they needed to hear. The first four are about loving God and the final six are about loving others. That's how Jesus can sum up the law when he was asked in just two commands. Love God, love your neighbour. They cover how God's people are to behave, how they're to speak, even how they're to think and love. They're for obedience in every sphere of life, relating to God, our family, our work colleagues, how we use our leisure, and yes, even how we relate to one another in church. The amazing thing about God's law is that it also contains grace. The law is God's instruction book for a life that's designed to work. It shows us how we can live in ways that reflect his intentions, his holiness, and the image that we bear. And later in Exodus, he'll even include instructions about sacrifices for sin for all the times when the Israelites will fail to live up to this law. The good news for us is that our one and only mediator, Jesus, obeyed all of this law perfectly on our behalf. Our same Jesus also died as a penalty for disobedience to this same law on our behalf. That's why God can give sinners like us grace and still remain holy, but it only comes through Jesus. But that's not the only good news coming out of this for us. Israel struggled to obey this law because it wasn't written on their hearts. But now through the Holy Spirit, God writes this law on our very hearts so that we'll want to walk in step with the way he teaches us. At the same time, that Holy Spirit will give us power to put sin to death and to obey his law. And when we fail, as we will, because sin still resides in us, the Spirit will convict us of this sin. He'll turn us back to Jesus. He'll pray with and for us. He'll assure us of our forgiveness and our adoption in God's family. And he'll transform us to be more like Jesus over time. What God starts as a work of grace in us, he will continue over and over until we see him. It was great hearing about your church looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, our church did this in a leader's context uh, about a year ago. Uh, we started running some training for leaders across our church and we started with the topic of Christian character and looked at Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit as well. And at the end of this night, one of the participants shared with the group that he could actually see uh, major growth taking place in some of these fruits of the Spirit. In his case, joyfulness and goodness. Uh, that kind of growth that God produces in us is not just for leaders. In fact, God promises to develop every fruit in every Christian through his Spirit. As you think about your life in Christ for a moment, where has God given you grace to change through his spirit? Where do you need to ask God for more mercy and grace in your time of need? Well, the second reason and our last point is that God gives his saved people the law for mission and for worship. In chapter 19, verse 4, God tells his people that he saved them. And then in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19, he outlines his plan for God's people to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, going right back, God promised to bless Abraham, to make him into a great nation, and through him to bless the whole world. God is not going to allow Adam's sin in Genesis 3 to have the last word. He loves our fallen world, and he's working to restore it. And the amazing thing is, he wants to use us, his saved people, in his great work of redeeming the world. God's people are to be his treasured possession among the nations. Although all the nations are his, God's people will be particularly special to him. They will function as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As a holy nation, they will live distinctive lives based on God's law that will make them stand out from their neighbours and will point praise upwards to God. As a kingdom of priests, they will have unique access to God and be able to worship him and bring the needs of others and our world before him. This very same dynamic is brought out clearly in the New Testament by Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. According to him, we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. Why? That we may declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. When we declare God's praises to others, that's mission. When we declare them back to God, that's worship. We find this same teaching elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, Peter says a little later in 1 Peter 2 verse 12 that God's people should live such good lives among the pagans that they may see their good deeds and praise their Father in heaven. Perhaps he was reflecting on what Jesus taught in Matthew 5.16, where he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Declaring God's praises starts with everyday obedience to God's law. And as our lives stand out from among our neighbours, we will have opportunities to bear witness to God's saving grace through our mediator, Jesus. Let me bring all of this to a close by telling you a story about my friend, Matthew Inman. Matt was a good friend of Emily and I several years ago when we were part of a church together in another part of Sydney. Four years ago, Matt died from motor neuron disease. At his funeral, one of his close working colleagues stood up and gave one of the most moving speeches I think I've ever heard. Matt's colleague told the crowd of several hundred people in this packed auditorium that Matt was the only person in the office that everyone looked up to. He was a senior manager at the CSIRO and he told us that Matt never lied. He never complained. He never slandered his colleagues. He never participated in office gossip. He always sought the very best for everyone that he worked with, especially his staff that he led. Matt was not a capital E evangelist by any means. He was just an ordinary Christian bloke who sought to obey God in the context of his workplace. Now, I don't know if anyone actually became a Christian that day, but here's what I can tell you, that during that funeral, hundreds of people, uh, many of them, perhaps even most of them, given his work context, saw the positive difference that God's grace 
made in not just Matt's life, but in the many months of his death. What they heard and they saw in Matt absolutely impressed them. Because at the reception that followed, that's what all of us were talking about, Christians and non-Christians alike. And God was greatly glorified. God is powerful and God is holy. And so he saves us through a mediator, Jesus, for holiness, mission and worship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for appointing Jesus as our mediator so that we may approach you with confidence for mercy and grace in our time of need. We ask that you would please help us by your spirit to put our trust in Jesus for our salvation. We also ask that you would empower us by your spirit to pursue your holiness, your mission and your worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.